Well, good morning again, and it's great to have you as we continue on with our series, This Is Us. And uh, if you've missed any uh, first part, it's available online. Uh, we special welcome to those online with us. And I hope you'll all be able to see all seven parts. Um, and if you miss a part, catch up online. It's great that we are able to do that. Our whole series, This Is This, is about finding God within the relationships that matter most to us, our family, our friends. And uh, as we try to walk through those relationships, at times uh, they can get a little messy. So this is to help us to understand that. Uh, those of you who are very familiar with the popular TV show, This Is Us, and have watched a few episodes, uh, find that, man, there is just one thing after another. And for the most part, they're good folks trying to do the best they can with the situations they have. I think I told you last week that uh, as I watched a few of these episodes, I just felt exhausted. I mean, there's just one crisis after another, and that's really what keeps people engaged to some to see how that's going to go. But the one thing that's lacking, the one concern is you watch them, again, good people trying to do right things in crazy situations, is that there is not a mention or not a part of their relationships God. It's, it's kind of them doing it on their own. And uh, we need to be mindful of that. We need to understand that when it comes to this is us and it comes to walking with God, God can inform and speak into our relationships, not so that they're going to be perfect, but they can go in a direction that, that's, just, that's better. And without that, we really don't have that foundation, and we talked about that last week. So this week, as we continue on, we're going to look at the idea of uh, being set up. And when most of us think about being set up, we think about this. Hey, Adam. When's Stefani? What's happening? I think I'm ready to start dating again. What are you looking for? I'm sick of LA guys. I want someone completely different, maybe from another country, and someone cultured and sensitive and who is not threatened by a strong, confident woman. On a spotty network, this is what Adam heard. I'm sick of LA guys. I want someone completely country, uncultured, and threatened by a strong, confident woman. It's not wings or nachos, it's wings and nachos. Hey, send my onion rings down here. I have your guy. Gwen? Lake? Um, hilarious, right? I mean, no. What do you mean? Are you wearing spurs? Did you ride a horse here? Yeah. You need to ride home? <laughs> And if those of you are familiar with those two, they actually got married this summer. So um, I guess the setup worked in that case. But, uh, you know, we don't like to be set up in all kinds of situations. Uh, we don't like setting up in relationships. We don't like being set up for failure by some folks. We just, we just don't like that. And uh, there are some times, though, that we actually set ourselves up. And that is probably the worst thing is when you and I... Uh, set ourselves up in an area that we don't have clear understanding, and we find that it creates, creates a problem. And that's especially in the case of knowing how God would have us uh, interact with our world, about how he would have us in relationship with him, in relationship with others. And so we're going to say that uh, God has a lot of wisdom when it comes to our relationships, but sometimes, even those of us who have been around uh, church world and the Bible for a little while, kind of get a little confused. And uh, one area that has just really disastrous effects spiritually in our life is this. It's when we confuse promises and principles. In the scriptures, there's things that are promises, 
And then there are ideas and concepts that are principles. And when you and I take a principle and hold on to it as a promise, we're really setting ourselves up for a problem. Because what's going to happen in our life is as we think God promised this, the first thing we're going to think is, man, I must be getting something wrong. I must not be doing it right. God must not be happy with me because he's not uh, letting this promise unfold in my life. And then eventually, sometimes we can get to the place where we uh, maybe do this internally because we're well-behaved Christians in a sense, but we actually get a little mad with God because uh, this promise didn't come through. We see there are scenarios that are principles in our promises. And when you and I get that confused, we set ourselves up for spiritual disaster and heartache. And so I'll give you a couple examples of these. For example, this one, a gentle answer turns around wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Now, if this is a promise, every time you're a part of a conversation and it gets a little heated, a promise would be that you are gentle and it de-escalates it. If that's a promise. And some of us would obviously say, I've not had that happen all the time. I've had me do the gentle response and it doesn't get better. The heat is still there. So we walk away and go, what happened with God's promise? You see, actually that was a principle. Normally, when you're in a conversation and it gets a little energized, if you de-escalate it with gentle words, kindness, the situation dissipates. But that doesn't happen all the time. So we need to know the difference or we're setting ourselves up for problems. Uh, Another one would be this. When people live to please the Lord, even their enemies will be at peace with them. So if you think this is a promise, then any time or if you're living in the direction of pleasing God, and none of us do this perfectly, but we can definitely be on that path, we should expect that our enemies will uh, be at peace with us. But all of us have had situations where we would say, you know, I'm not perfect, but I am on the pathway with something they call it the pathway of righteousness. I'm trying to follow God, live out his word in relationship with him, and I'm pleasing him. But I do have people, we wouldn't use the word strongest as enemies, but people that just are out to get us and like to get after us, and we find that we're still not at peace with them. But, but a lot of times when you and I incorporate principles as principles and it shapes the way we live, we will find, to our surprise, that sometimes those actions do create peace with them. So again, principle versus promise. Then there's this other one. Those who work their land will have abundant food, but those who chase fantasies have no sense. The idea here is somebody that actually is hardworking, and a lot of folks around here are involved with agriculture, so you understand this. You work your land hard. You do what you're supposed to do when you're supposed to do it. The idea here is that then you'll have an abundant crop. Same thing true. You can apply it to your work, what you do for a living, and uh, you you work it hard. You do what you're supposed to do. You take responsibility. Then there should be this abundance uh, because of that. But all of us have had situations where we know of or it's happened to us where we've worked it hard. We, we have done all the things that we're supposed to do, and it doesn't turn out that way. 
I'm sure you know some farmers that have done everything right, but they have not had the abundance that you would expect from that. You see, this is a principle. And so we need to understand that when we take principles and make them into promises, we find ourselves setting ourselves up for difficulties, for spiritual problems, for disasters, in a sense, to being angry at God or just really confused with, with how we're living. So this is why it's so important to know God well through his word, uh, to spend time thinking and digesting. Uh, that's one reason we have community groups and them taking different cuts of things. That's why we're so excited for community Bible study. We're so excited for our kids being in Awana and in Kids Zone and youth group because we want us to understand, and one of those understandings is what is a principle and what is a promise. One of the ones that uh, probably is the greatest heartache in our life when we think it's a promise instead of a principle is this one. Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Some of us, when we even say that right now in this moment, your heart aches because you weren't a perfect parent, but you did what you're supposed to do, and now you're in this situation where it seems like your child doesn't really want to have anything with following God. And you look at your life and you go, oh, and that hurts so badly. You trained the child. You would have been, yeah, I'm under perfect, but I trained my child on the way he should go or she should go, but it hasn't turned around like this. Again, principle over promise. Normally, when you create an environment in your home or if you're investing in another child's life and you're trying to influence that child, maybe it's a nephew or niece, maybe it's a grandchild, uh, uh, maybe it's a, you know, a kid, you work in the school or, or whatever, and you're trying to point them to Christ, uh, you know, normally what happens is that has an effect on someone's life. But there are times where that does not happen. And so we've got to come to terms with that, even though it hurts so much. And uh, again, here is a, here is a, here's an example of a, of a perfect family. This is Han, and this is Leah, and that's uh, little Ben. And uh, Han and Leah, even Uncle Luke, was really involved in their life. And uh, it just does not go that way. It does not. They, they trained him up in the way he should go, and uh, it just doesn't go well. This is Ben as he grows up. Look how old you've become. Something far worse has happened to you. You know what I've come for. I know where you come from. Before you called yourself Kylo Ren. You are so right. We have no confirmation, but we believe FN 2187 may have helped in the escape. <laughs> His parents told him not to get angry like that. Take off that mask. You don't need it. What do you think you'll see if I do? The face of my son. Your son? He's gone. He was weak and foolish like his father. So I destroyed him. But it's not true. It's too late. No, it's not. Leave here with me. Come home. We miss you. I want to be free of this pain. 
I know what I have to do, but I don't know if I have the strength to do it. Will you help me? Yes, anything. Spoiler alert, doesn't go well for good old dad. Some of us live in that pain. And we go back to a Proverbs 22.6 and say, why are things unfolding as they're unfolding? It aches. We want that kid, that child, that person that we've invested in because we cared for them to follow Christ. We don't want them to turn into that guy. <laughs> and uh, you see the hurt of the parents when you see Leah and Han talking about this. I saw him. Leah, I saw her son. I'm trying to be helpful. <laughs> when did that ever help? And don't say the death star. I... We lost our son forever. No way. We can still save him. Me. You. If Luke couldn't reach him, how could I? Luke is a Jedi. You're his father. If you see our son, bring him home. And the pain just continues. When you and I see Proverbs 22, verse 6, as a promise, uh, it's spiritually dangerous for us because it causes us to question everything. When it's a principle, we can understand that we've gone in a direction, we've tried to do this, we've tried to do the best we can, and uh, a lot of times it turns out well but it's not a promise, it's not a guarantee. And what makes, again, this so dangerous is this, is we all of a sudden experience undeserved guilt. Undeserved guilt. When we take inventory of the kids that we've tried to touch with our lives, our children, others, and uh, it hasn't unfolded the way we wanted it to, the way we had hoped it to, the way that principle says, if we take it as a promise, we just feel guilty. And sometimes we run into the folks, maybe it's ourselves, maybe it's somebody else, and we just, we just see that it's an open wound because somehow they took this as a promise rather than a principle. Now, even when you take it as a principle, it doesn't mean you, you all of a sudden feel great about it, but you don't carry the same kind of burden when you realize this is a principle. Then there's the flip side, and we bump into these people that have reckless confidence. Their kids, the kids they were involved in, investing in, have turned out, you think, great. And you bump into these people, sometimes parents, sometimes grandparents, sometimes whatever, and they just have a reckless confidence like they got their act together, and someone else who didn't have that same success didn't have their act together. And they walk around, you know, feeling pretty good about themselves where the reality is they were just fortunate. Yes, the principle worked in their life. Sometimes the principle worked in spite of them. You know, sometimes people will say to us, you know, oh, your three girls, they're, you know, they're pretty great. I go, yeah, 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 they, they are, and, and that's great. And, uh, you know, but uh, at the same time, you, you know, it, it was on a, you know, a wing and a prayer in a sense. 
You know, we really, we really, it, it wasn't us. And it would be, it would be kind of funny to think that, you know, maybe if I, if I did that with a thousand kids, you, you know, anything you do, you got to do it a lot of times. So three kids really doesn't make you an expert. Let's be honest. Uh, if you're going to have surgery, right, you don't want the doctor that's only done it once or twice or three times. You want the doctor that's done the surgery a thousand times couple thousand times. That's the doctor you want. So again, there's this danger, this arrogance that can come into people's lives when their kids kind of seem to be what they wanted them to be, and they have a reckless confidence rather than just having a sense of gratefulness and thankfulness. Uh, then there's also this idea of deceptive hope. You and I uh, can, again, if we think this is a promise... We have a hope that's built on, this is a promise. It's just, I'm just biding my time. And, and we do hear stories where towards they grow up and all of a sudden someone really is rekindling their faith because of the heritage they had, the growth they had. But, but it doesn't always happen that way. Some of us hear stories of, you know, a child that decided to follow Christ when they were younger, maybe, you know, 10, 12, and now they're 35, and I'm just throwing that number out, the 35, and there just never has been seen any, any fruit in their life, and, and we're, just, we're just like, we're just in anguish over it. We've got to realize that this is a principle, not a, a promise, Jesus even talks about the good news in the gospel being a situation that can divide families. Some of us experience that. Some of your family wants to follow Christ. Some of your family really doesn't. And it creates tension in the relationship. Jesus even talks about that. So this idea that this is a guaranteed promise just, just breaks our hearts. So then if we take it as a principle... If we take it as a principle, we're going to see that, um, that it's a painful pleasure. We're going to see that, yes, it's a principle, so we're thankful that we, that we have this, this principle that says if we kind of do it this way, you, you know, the chances go up that we're creating an environment where our child or um, where we're, whatever we're doing is going to have an impact in their life. But again, there's a pain side of it because we also realize that it's possible that it won't turn out that way. So we kind of just go into that with our eyes wide open. Now, it doesn't let us off the hook of doing our best as we can do, but we understand that it can be a painful pleasure. And what's amazing is God understands this. God understands parental pain. He gets it. He's a father. He's a heavenly father. He totally, totally gets it. So when you're thinking about your life and you're thinking about God, you go, oh, God doesn't get it, but God completely gets it. Just look at this passage from Isaiah. I reared children and brought them up, but they rebelled against me. The ox knows his master, but Israel does not know my people. Do not understand. There's this idea that uh, God, as a heavenly father, has experienced this, the painful pleasure of knowing if he points people to himself, if he even calls to them, they have an ability to reject, not respond. Uh, they have an ability to go off the rails, and he understands that. We've talked about this often, that you know, God doesn't force himself on us. He gives us room. 
to decide what we're going to do. That's the reason Joshua says, as for me and my house, we will follow the Lord. But the outcome of that, the outcome of that is a principle, not a promise. Now, can't let us totally off the hook as we're moving in this direction. We need to realize that direction, not intention, determines our destination. Andy Stanley writes about this and this idea that, yes, we do need to have a a direction. We need to have a consistency. We really do need to create an environment where, where it makes it easier for our kids to follow Christ that we're investing in, whether it's our own kids or other kids. Uh, that's the reason we have, you know, Awana, we have KidZone, we have Access, we do VBS, all these kinds of things to help create an environment to help complement what families are doing. And uh, so we're trying to do this, but we have to just not have good intentions. We actually have to put feet to our ideas so that we're going in the right direction. Uh, said another way, Proverbs 22.6 says this, point your kids in their right direction, in the right direction. When they are old, they won't be lost. Now, it's interesting, the reason I have there in parentheses that the direction, the right direction, actually is having the parent or the person investing in this child understand how they're wired. So when you and I point kids in their right direction... We get to know the kids well enough so we know what will work better in their lives than something else. So we have to know our kids really well that we're trying to invest in so that we can point them. We know how they respond, what gets their attention, how they work, what, what love languages, all these kinds of things. So we, we, we study the child. We know the child. And we realize that this isn't a cookie-cutter kind of thing. Yeah, there's some parameters, there's some boundaries, but inside that, there are different things that work with different kids. I learned that a lot with our kids. Some things that would work with Sarah or Hannah or Mariah wouldn't work with the other ones. So there was a different tact, there was a different approach, and, and sometimes I actually would take heat from one of the other kids. Why are you doing it that way? Why aren't you doing this way? And, you know, I wasn't ready to explain all this to them, but, it, you know, it's, it's because this is what res- they respond better to. Saw that in my own life. My father would uh, apply different kind of pressure to me growing up, speak to me a certain way, and it got my attention, and it was different than my brother, younger brother, and younger sister. You see, direction and understanding that the right direction. So we have to understand that if we take this, it's going to be a painful pleasure. It's going to be hard at times. It's going to be difficult times. We also need to understand that this principle, it allows for prodigals. So in a sense, not to take all the responsibility away, but it allows you to realize that when this is a principle, not every child in your care is going to respond this way. Hopefully lots will, but not every child. The story about the prodigal son is imagery referring to God and us because God has prodigal kids. So when this is a principle, it allows for that to happen. So again, understanding our kids, understanding what's going on in their lives is just very important. A prodigal is someone who spends his time, his resources of life on self with no regard to God. Sometimes you and I, even those of us who would say, yes, I'm a Christ follower, fall into this a little bit, but hopefully get back on track sooner than later. 
Now, when we're thinking again about prodigals, some ideas that are good to realize is uh, the difference of first generation, second generation, and third generation of Christ followers. First generation of Christ's followers or those who uh, follow God usually is they're pretty connected. They've gone from one situation to not really having God a part of their lives to having God a part of their lives, lives, and they're committed and they love it. I think of Abraham. I think of David. They give the approach of what it might be to be first generation. There's, there's a commitment there. And now this doesn't always happen, but it can happen. This, again, is a principle, these ideas, these expressions, is second generation. They can be compromised. It's really not fresh to them. They're kind of living off the coattails of your faith as a first-generational Christian, and their commitment reflects that. They've kind of learned the ropes of what you do and what you don't do. They dabble on maybe being more of a cultural Christian, They know the rules, they know how to function, they know what the habits are, and they just kind of do that. And it's easier for them to be uh, a little more compromised. You think of King Solomon, I would say second generation. He owned it but didn't own it. He he was compromised a little bit. I think of, um, also I think of Jacob, until he has this experience with God. Jacob, you know, is, is, or uh, excuse me, Isaac is a second generation. You read the story of Isaac and you can kind of see that. Then there's the third generation. The third generation can really be cold. Not always, but a lot of times they can be cold. And that's where I think of Rehoboam. I think of Jacob. Uh, until Jacob had a situation with God, he, he was cold. Uh, they really were, in a sense, cultural God followers. And so then you say, what do we do? And again, these are all have different shades of nuances. Uh, not everyone is a cookie-cutter kind of thing. But taking these things into mind, we need to realize that we need to create first-generation experiences. Fresh stuff, new stuff, stuff where they need to be able to lean into God, not in their abilities, not in the techniques and culture of being a Christ follower. They actually have to live it. They have to have some faith experiences. Uh, you, you know, uh, Jacob wrestles with God. That's his first generation experience. With our girls, we tried it. Um, there were times where all three girls worked at a Christian camp, and then all of a sudden they got exposed. They were out of their comfort zone. Uh, they were trying to make a difference in kids' lives. Uh, I remember this happened to me when I, I'm second, third generation Christian, and, and I went and worked at this camp, and it was the first time I really felt uncomfortable. I've shared this with you before. I couldn't believe that parents were, like, leaving their kids with me. I mean, I'm 19 years old, and I have this cabin, and do you realize that I'm just as immature as they are, you know, what's going on here? You go, whoa, what's going on with camp? But, you know, I just realized, wow, I can't believe it. But it is in that moment where I wanted to see God work in some other kid's life. I was put in that environment. I was having first-generation experiences. And the times where I see, you know, 10-year-old in my cabin give his life to Christ just energized my faith. So we did that for our kids, and then there were some mission trips, if we could, you could pull it together. I mean, this is, again, this isn't cookie cutter, but for us, uh, you know, we went, took them all to the Dominican Republic and uh, just different country, different thing. Uh, you know, we'd go down, you know, a little town there, and uh, you'd see 
guy standing out in front of each shop with like a shotgun and like, what is this? This is like uncomfortable. What's going on? Different language, just all these kinds of things. And they really had to lean into God. They had a first generation experience. This may seem a little odd to you, but even like Abraham going to where he didn't know he was going, having to trust God, go there, and I'll tell you when you get there kind of thing. Uh, us moving here. Uh, you know, Mariah was a freshman in high school, and Sarah and Hannah were juniors in high school. And moving to an unknown place, they had to not just be cultural Christians and kind of know the routine and be comfortable where they're at, and they had their friends. They, they had to go to a new place. And they had to wake up every morning a little nervous, and it's pretty traumatic changing schools at those age to a completely different place. They had to really lean into God. And sometimes in the early years when people asked me how I liked being in, you know, the Finger Lakes and, you know, how things were going and uh, in pastor world, they'd say, what kind of a career move was that for you and those kinds of things? And, you know, I'd say, well, I'd say to them, I'd say, whatever happens with that is secondary because going into that environment, upsetting the comfort of our family did things in my kids' lives that I would do a thousand times again, even if the career part didn't go well, because what happened in their hearts was powerful. Now, you don't need to move, you don't need to do those things, but thinking through what are first generational experiences. If you're a first generation Christian, how do I expose my kids to those things that caught me on fire when, wow, this energizes me. You think about that, and you think about those ideas. And again, you know, this is really what's going on with in the prodigal son, uh, father, um, kid. You know, let's just say, you know, we don't know if they were second, third generations. You can, by the way, you can read too much into a, into a parable. Uh, sometimes I hear people talk about, like, the dirt on the floor in the parable means something. Oh, I think it's just dirt on the floor. But there are things that are in there. So, so looking at these two guys and seeing what they needed to experience, we're going to see, we saw that the, the, the oldest son, um, you, you know, he... he he, he's a cultural God-fearer, and we see the response when his younger brother comes back. And we see the younger brother getting to the place that he's in a first-generation experience. He trusts in all his resources. It's also interesting that his father let him go. His father actually financially supported him in his going. So there's a fine line there. You know, is that enabling him or not? You know, you've got to ask those questions. You've got to think that through. But he went there and then got to the place where he was out of resources, out of abilities, and he stuck, and all of a sudden his heart turns, I, I need to go back to my heavenly father, or my, my father, and, and that's figurative of our heavenly father. He comes to his senses. He had that first-generation experience. Sometimes you and I, who have been Christians for a while, maybe even first-generation, need to ask ourselves, are we putting ourselves into situations that are first-generation Christian experiences? When I have my life all buttoned up and have it so organized so well, so because I've been a responsible individual, and there's no room or there's no place where I actually really have to trust God, I mean really trust God, I, I can start to be that way. We all need those kinds of experiences, but especially uh, with our kids, especially as we're trying to see that this principle is not a promise we need to see that, and we need to, need to understand how that all works. 
Now, and I do want to say there, there definitely are promises in Scripture. Every time you see a rainbow, that's a promise. Every time you pray, there's a promise that God hears your prayers. He answers your prayers, not in the way you may want, but he is answering your There are promises in Scripture. When you say yes to Christ, when you say, you know, I need forgiveness in my life, I need you in my life, I want to trust in you, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm giving my life to you the best way I know hand, and, and, and I want to be yours, uh, Jesus says, nobody can snatch you from his hand. That, that's a promise. No situation, no nothing can snatch you. So there are promises, but there are also uh, principles. Now, as we, as we think about all of this and we think about some of the characteristics of, um, of a first generation or of, of prodigals, we see this. We see a couple of characteristics. First of all, uh, prodigals become increasingly more uh, self-centered. Now, again, this isn't cookie cutter, but a lot of times you can see this happening. You see that happening with the prodigal son. Um, he's very self-centered, um, and also along with this is that he thinks he knows all the answers. And so this is kind of the way he's running, and we just need to be prepared for that. That happens. Uh, you need to answer those things. You need to be a part of his life but you, or her life. You, you just need to realize that this is a part of what is going on. And then obviously, uh, immediate gratification. What counts for the moment, not thinking long-term. Thinking long-term, that, that's a scriptural principle. You think of the future. And in many areas, you think of the future. So you understand these are some of the characteristics. Sometimes you and I go prodigal for a little while. We get off the rails. If we're increasingly being self-centered, if we think we know all the answers, if we're immediately gratifying whatever that is, uh, we're kind of going off the rails. We need to understand that uh, this is a part of all of this. Now, when we're working with someone that's gone prodigal, and you probably know this yourself because we all go prodigal from time to time, hopefully just a little bit, and then we get back on track, we need to realize that incomplete faith can easily be hijacked by guilt. I'm going to explain this in a second. Incomplete faith. Now, now, to some degree, we don't have all the answers. We haven't arrived, so we're still learning and growing. But this idea that someone's new or is practicing faith incompletely uh, can be hijacked by guilt. Uh, sometimes you've done this with your kids. I've done this with my kids. Uh, I, I tried to get them to do what I thought they ought to do by making them feel guilty. And it works for a while. You can make someone feel guilty and, and get their attention. But that's, that's not the, the mode of changing someone's life, of seeing them not go prodigal. Guilt only has so much of a shelf life, and then it actually does the opposite. Guilt doesn't work. When believing students, this is from a book, uh, Seven Checkpoints, when believing students veer off course, they are immediately confronted with a tidal wave of guilt. There are only two ways they can get rid of guilt. Ask for forgiveness and change their behavior or change their belief system. Change how they believe is often easier than changing how they behave. And that is so scary for us whose parents who, who let our babies go off to school or to another place because we're, we're worried about this. 
And, and if we, they've grown up in a church, in a family that's honored Christ, and again, as a church, we're trying to complement what you're doing in your family. We don't replace that. We complement what you're doing. Uh, but when you think of that, uh, you don't want your person going out there and feeling guilty and then say, man, I feel so guilty. What am I going to do with this guilt? You know, changing my behavior is so hard, I think I'm just going to change my belief system. So now this behavior is okay. It's all right to do this, and you come up with all these excuses, whatever it may be. So guilt is, is not the direction you want to go because eventually it runs out. And change behavior or just change belief, and it's a lot easier to change our beliefs. So as we think about Proverbs and we think about this proverb being a principle, we have to also realize that as a principle, it allows for grace to win. It allows for grace to win. We, we can have grace interjected to the situation. And this is really good stuff. We want grace to win. We, we want to touch the person's life. And, and really, that's what, that's what happens in Luke 15, 20, is there's grace. There's grace. The father responds with grace. He could be in his house not looking the other way, and when the son knocks on the door, make him kind of grovel in and make him, you know, all this forgiveness, and you bad boy, and you should feel guilty, and yeah, let me think about whether I'll take you back, you know, you know, I gave you all this money, and I know how you spent it, and that was wrong, naughty, 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 and all this stuff, but that's not the way the father reacts. He's graceful. He doesn't completely look the other way, but he's graceful. There's consequences, but there's grace. And I don't know about you, but especially those uh, children that I, or anyone that I've tried to influence and point them in the right direction, I think, uh, and then they veer off and they go prodigal, I want them to at least think that if they knock on my door or give me a call or send me a text, they're going to get this kind of response, not a, I told you so. There's got to be grace in order to win. A part of that grace involves unwavering prayer. Some of you are living this life right now. You're praying for uh, kids, grandkids, nieces and nephews, uh, maybe somebody you worked with in, in a youth group situation or somebody you worked with where you work and, and you want to see them touched by Christ. Paul praying this way, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you. We continue to ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understand that the, understand that the Spirit gives. We read on, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good word, work growing in the knowledge of God. So we, so we pray for this person. And, and we, we pray in a number of ways. Uh, first of all, and we've talked a little about this when we talked about community. We pray that they have the right friends. When someone usually brings an individual that they're concerned about and they've tried to work with them, point them in the right direction. I say, we need to pray that other Christ followers come into their life, show up in their life, and, and connect with them. And I've seen this happen. I've seen someone really has, have a heart for someone, and then a couple years go, maybe they even get out of their sphere of influence, and a couple years later the person comes back, and, and they've said yes to Christ, and all these kinds of things. They've come back, and it was because somebody else in their world said the same thing you had been pointing to 
for years. So other people, the right friends. Um, also pray that they experience the consequences. And, and that's hard. You're not trying to have them have an aha moment where, see, you stepped out of line and now you got slammed. It's not that kind of idea. But you do want them to experience the consequences. You want them to have a prodigal son moment where they come to their senses. So you pray about that. You also pray that uh, God will do whatever it takes. And I know one time I had a student that I was working with and uh, spent a lot of time with him. And I didn't do this in a judgmental way, but I just said to him, I said, I won't say his name. I'll, I'll make up a name, Billy. I said, Billy, you know, I, I, I'm praying that God's going to rattle your heart and do whatever it takes to grab your attention. He did not like that at all. Did not like that. Again, I didn't do that in a mean-spirited, you know, pointing my finger. But I, I, I wanted God to grab his heart. I'm sure the prodigal son's father was praying those kinds of things. Also involved with this is an unending patience and also an un unconditional love. We've talked about that. We talked about that a little bit last week. But again, a patience that's not enabling, it's the tipping point on that takes takes some work. That's the reason it's nice to have other Christians in your life so you can talk some of these things out with them. Say, hey, you know, I'm really concerned about, and I'm, you know, I'm trying to be patient, but I'm trying not to enable them. What do I do? What do you think? And, and, and you know, these decisions you don't have to make on your own. You can do this in community. You have a couple friends that can, can help you with this. And obviously, unconditional love, uh, communicating that uh, my love for you doesn't hinge on your behavior. Um, do your kids really know that? Do they know that you don't love them for the way they behave? You just love them because you love them? And again, that, it's hard. It's hard to say, don't really agree with that. I don't approve of that, but I accept you. I love you. And this involves, you know, all these things. We see this in Isaiah. But the Lord still waits for you to come to him so he can show you his love and compassion for the Lord is a faithful God. And aren't we happy that he is a faithful God? Aren't we happy that he demonstrates compassion to us? I don't know only about you, but I need compassion and mercy almost every day. Sometimes I need it by hour. So I want to reflect the love and the way the Father works with me as a person interested in others. I want to reflect that in my life towards them. So as we pull this all together, we think about the difference of principle and promise. We avoid being set up with all that comes along with thinking that, uh, you know, Proverbs uh, 22.6 is a promise rather than a principle. This is what we come up with. Principled parents wait for the promise of grace. We wait and we pray that somehow that child, that grandchild, that niece, nephew, that other person, that kid that we want to influence, we pray for the promise of grace. And really, this is the way all of us as Christ followers. It's just not the uh, parent. It's principled Christ follower. Wait with the promise of grace. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we just uh, often thank you for the story of the prodigal son and how it speaks to us. Uh, Father, I just ask that you would help all of us to be able to look at Scripture as a whole and see where there are principles versus promises. 
Help us not be setting ourselves up for just heartache and spiritual disaster because we take a promise uh, as a principle and a principle as a promise. Lord, give us that depth, that growth, so we understand your word. Help us to know it and how it applies to life. We're thankful that uh, somebody in our lives was kind and gentle when we kind of got off the rails or got off the rails a lot. We thank you for that. May we in turn be that kind of person in somebody else's life. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.